Thank you, Peyton. And I want to say good morning to all of you and welcome to worship this morning. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And I want to talk about worship. We do a lot of things to try to help um, give people something that they can actually sink their hearts, their heads, their hands into in terms of what we do as a congregation, as a campus. You might notice if you've visited here for the first time or if you've been here for a long time, we do some elements in our worship service that are a little bit atypical if you come from various denominational streams or trajectories. We do a, a confession. We do an assurance. We do communion every Sunday, and we do doxology. And for some, that can be a little bit off-putting, and it might seem a little bit liturgical, but I want to say we do that very intentionally because we want to be connected with truth and grace to one another as extensively as we can, but not just as a campus here, not just as a church here, but really with the church throughout space and time. Because God has a people, because of who God is, because of what God has done, because of what he is like, we are thus. And so we get to do things, not in some Roman Catholic way, not trying to disparage that whatsoever, but that sometimes makes people uncomfortable. We're not doing anything to, to earn or achieve. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, full stop. And the gospel plus anything is nothing. We're not adding anything, but I just want some of you to hear that. As I also say, that beginning February 22nd, the church around the world will be entering into a season of Lent. Now, for many of us who grew up in a Protestant denomination or a Protestant tradition, that seems kind of like, well, that's just silly. There's just no reason for that. We live in freedom. We live in grace. And that's correct. We live in an age of grace. However, for many, myself included, the season of Lent is about intentionally increasing mindfulness. It's just an, an attempt to remove perhaps some of the distractions that vie so vehemently for our hearts, affections, our minds, attentions. And so beginning February 22nd, we're going to begin a group that meets together periodically. Tiffany Gillum's going to lead that because she's a rock star and cares about this kind of thing to give people an opportunity to be together and discuss opportunities for rest the things that promise rest, the things that promise satisfaction, the things that promise fulfillment but can't and therefore don't can be set aside for a season that we would experience peace and presence as we drive toward our corporate commemoration of the work of Jesus at his death, burial, and resurrection. So I want to invite you to think toward those ends, to pray toward that. February 22nd is coming up. In the coming weeks, you'll hear more written about that in our weekly e-news, email correspondence, and we'll talk more about it from the platform. For now, I want us to pray together and prepare our hearts and minds, even our bodies, because we're going to have a full morning together. Uh, you will nap well. So, Let's pray together. Don't start your nap just yet. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you that you are present by your spirit indwelling your people. These are not mere words occupying audible space. Lord God, we speak and you, the sovereign creator of the cosmos, you hear us. And so we approach you, Lord God. In a sense, on bended knee, certainly with soft hearts, open minds, that you would communicate to us, that you would touch us, teach us, and transform us. God, you've chosen to reveal yourself, your truth, through your word. So I pray, God, personally, for wisdom and communication. I pray for openness and receptivity, that your word, though it be a lot, would be impactful, that it would sound forth and not return void. And I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know what uh, kind of week you had, <laughs> but I suspect for many of you, you might have had a weird week. Maybe it was just strange and you find yourself going, what is going on? Is that you at all? Maybe you wondered what was really going on with the power company. Nobody? Just me? Yeah? 
when you drove up and down Broadway and you hadn't had power for 72 hours and you saw no less than about, I don't know, 6,000 electrical wire trucks going up and down Broadway and you still had no power and you begin to say, why do I not have power? Why do I not have power? And your wife says, hey, you sure are complaining a lot. And I say, am I? I'm just asking, why do I not have power? And she would, and then she would tase me and it would be, okay, okay. Maybe you're wondering kind of what was going on. Maybe you're just wondering what is going on with your life and God and God in your life and everything else. Well, the good news is our Bibles read us more than we read them. And our Bibles are not just a collection of random stories. We say this all the time, but I want to say it again. Narrative passages of Scripture in particular are a commentary about God by God. That's important for us to understand. They're not just a random bunch of stories. It is God himself communicating to us via story so that we will understand what he's like, what he has done, and therefore who we are. Half of human history takes place between Genesis 1 to 11. I'm not getting into old earth, new earth, a geologic record. None of that stuff matters. I'm saying half of human history takes place between Genesis 1 and 11. And during that season, there is great wreckage. Mankind implodes on himself again and again. So at the end of chapter 11, there has been a scattering of peoples. The world is in chaos. There is flame and wreckage. But God comes to a man in Ur the Chaldeans named Abram. He says, I'm making you a promise. Now, most of us have heard that at some level before in church, Sunday school, BSF, life group, whatever it might be. But the promise really is the central figure of the Old Testament other than God. The promise is how God has said, I will drag down the boundaries of heaven and I will bring it to earth. Man's eternal quest. How does me, how do I have access to that which I cannot reach? And God says, I will make you a promise, Abraham. Then he makes a covenant, and then he swears an oath. I will give you land and offspring and blessing. I will create a habitat in which God and man can dwell together because that's been his plan all along. And so in chapter 12 of Genesis, we get this promise, God's gracious promise to undeserving mankind. It's one of the major themes of our Bible. And it's taken different iterations and different manifestations throughout all of our history. But God is doing a redemptive recreation in it, with it, and through people all over the world in every period all along the way. Hear that, all along the way. God has always had a deposit of his people that demonstrates his greatness and his glory where his grace and justice can be seen where he will be worshiped. God's promise to Abraham was actually for the world that there would be land, a material, actual, geographic location. There would be offspring. There would be more and more people that would come into it and blessing, bounty and providence from God, a manifestation of heaven on earth. You have to know that or you don't understand the severity and the significance of the promise. God is saying, I will bring heaven to earth and I'm beginning it now. It started in the garden, it went bad. It started in, after the garden and things went good and then it went bad and then there was a flood and it started to get a little bit better and then they got cocky. And so God says, now I'm gonna make a promise. I will fix this. You made the mess, I will make it right. Until some point in the future, the one to whom everything belongs returns to his own. God's doing the promise until the one to whom everything belongs returns to his own. We want to talk about the promise. We want to talk about you because that's our big idea for the morning and it goes like this. We are pockets of the promise. We are pockets of the promise. Now, this morning, we are in the book of Joshua, and we're going to talk about these various different little pockets of the promise that God deposits around the promised land and how that impacts us. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Joshua. We started the book of Joshua way back in September. We said that the theme of the book of Joshua is God is our salvation. That's the name of Joshua. That's what his name means. And that God is taking back his land and giving it as a gift to his people by grace. 
So Joshua is about the conquest. The book of Joshua can be broken into three sections. The entrance into the land, chapters 1 through 5. The conquest of the land, chapters 6 through 12. The allotment of the land, verses 13 to 21. Now, last week, we were just about to begin the apportionment or the allotments of the tribal lands when Caleb, dog boy, steps up and goes, I not just so fast, laddie, because he was Scottish, if you remember, if you were here last week. He really wasn't, but he steps up and he says, well, no, 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 God promised me way back in Numbers 13 and 14 when you and I, Joshua, were the only ones who wholly followed the Lord our God with our whole heart, and God promised us territory. And Joshua says, you're right. After all the fact that we've crossed the Jordan, we've taken Jericho and I, we got duped by the Gibeonites, we took the southern half, we took the northern half. After all that, Caleb, you're right, you're up first. And Caleb is a Gentile. He's a Kenizzite from the area around Saudi Arabia that gets grafted in with the tribe of Judah during the Exodus, probably a descendant of Esau because his his uncle's name, or his brother's name was Kenez, one of the descendants of Esau. This incredible Gentile grace grafting in. Caleb gets that, which brings us now finally at long last to chapter 15. Now, let me just, just set your expectations accordingly. We're going to cover this morning, Lord willing, Joshua 15 through 19. That's right, we're hitting five chapters today. Buckle up, 10 and 2, prepare for airbag deployment. We're going to get through this. All right, here we go. We're not going to read it all. I strongly encourage you and, and invite you and exhort you to read it on your own. But we're going to kind of just skip through some high points because the great, great majority of this is a real estate contract. And I understand that real estate contracts are not as exciting as war movies. But God is giving us some very great grand detail. We've already read in Psalm 8, what are we that God is mindful of us? But God knows the land and he knows your hand perfectly and precisely. So Joshua chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom. That's in the southeast, what is today modern Jordan. That's where Reuben would have been on the east side of the Jordan. So the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. We've got a map. I want to put this on for you so that you can see this. Judah gets mentioned first. This picks up in chapter 13 and 14 where Judah was about to receive the first apportionment, but then Caleb steps up and goes, no, 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 not so fast. Me first, because God promised. And Joshua says, you're right. Now we kind of pick back up, and Judah is going to go first. Why is Judah first? Judah is not the firstborn. Judah is the fourthborn. You might remember that Reuben was the firstborn, but he threw away his birthright because he behaved disgracefully with his father's concubine. Judah is always the first tribe to march in battle. Judah is always the first in war. Judah is always the first to attack. In the allotments when they surround the tabernacle, it is Judah that is always stationed at the entrance and the gate. You must go through Judah, the Lion of Judah, to get to the presence of Yahweh. Why is it Judah? Well, for that we have to go to God's word. Surprise, surprise. Way back some 400 years earlier, we've got a blessing that's given by Jacob. As Jacob is about to die, he gathers all of his sons around, and he's going to give them their prophetic blessing, who they're going to be. So very, very quickly, in Genesis chapter 49, just verses 8 to 10, I want you to hear how Jacob, prophetically giving oracle to the tribe of Judah because of God's word, this is what Jacob says about Judah. Genesis 48 or sorry, 49, 8 to 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's a little bit of a play on words. Judah means praise. That's what that word, that's what that name means. Judah, your brothers shall Judah you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then the key verse, Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that's the ESV's rendering of what is notoriously some of the most difficult and delicate and dicey Hebrew in your Old Testament. 
There's a different translation that I prefer. It's the NET, the New English Translation, and it gets the word correct. In the ESV, the word tribute there is the word shiloh. We have a street in East Texas here in South Tyler called Shiloh. It's from Hebrew, y'all. Shiloh means shiloh. And I think the NET actually uh, captures it better in context. This is how Genesis 49.10 would actually read. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him. The term Shiloh for all the rabbis, all the priests, it's always been understood as a, uh, as a foretaste of the coming of, of Messiah until he comes to whom it belongs. It creates a sense of expectant longing for the one that God will send to make all things right according to his promise. I know that's a lot, but just keep that in mind. That's the promise. That's the foretelling for the tribe of Judah. Now, there are a lot of uh, very interesting boundaries here in the 15th chapter for the allotment of Judah. I'm not going to read all of them, but I want you to know this. The allotment to Judah is absolutely huge. Apparently, we're told in chapters 13 and 14 that the allotments were made based on what God knew about the size and the needs of each tribe. So apparently Judah is absolutely huge. At some point, you'll see on the map that Simeon is actually going to be placed inside the tribal allotments of Judah. It's pretty much the entire southern half of Canaan, and it's going to bump up against Benjamin in the north. Now, Simeon, over time, is going to migrate away, and they're going to settle in the lands of Ephraim. You might have heard it talked about that when the, the monarchy splits after Solomon, he has a son named Rehoboam, and he's kind of a jerk. And so the monarchy splits. Rehoboam takes two tribes, hmm, and Jeroboam takes the other 10 tribes. But how can that be when Simeon, Benjamin, and Judah are in the south? Well, Simeon's already popped smoke by that time, and they went to go up and live in the Ephraim lands, and that was a very bad decision for them because they got janked by the Assyrians in 722 BC. <gasps> okay, back to our text. Here's what's going on. We're going to get these tribal allotments of the people of Judah, and I'm not going to read all of them. I just want to draw some attention. Chapter 15, verse 7. Just all these different boundaries. Verse 7. Now we're going to jump down. And the boundary goes up to Debir from the valley of Ahor. And so north, we're turning toward Gilgal, which is opposite the ascent of Adumim, which is on the south side of the valley. And the boundary passes along to the waters of En Shemesh and ends at En Rogel. Why are we stopping on that one? Because the Valley of Akor is a very specific and important spot. You may have been here back in the mid-fall when we were in Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of Achan. Achan, his name means trouble. Achan steals from God. He takes some of the plunder from Jericho and God knows it. Achan's name's a bit of a play on words. It's trouble. Uh, nobody who's having a baby these days, I hope, is going to name their kid Achan. Like, hey, little irritant. Hey, little thorn in my side. Hey, little sticker burr under my saddle. That's Achan. And they kill him by stoning him. And then just for good measure, they also burn him. Like he's dead, dead. All right? And they bury him in the valley of Achor. It's a play on words. It means the valley of trouble. So they take trouble and they bury him in the valley of trouble. And Judah inherits it. But then you go to the book of Hosea and God comes to Hosea and he tells Hosea, hey, Hosea, the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble where your people made a seething mess, I will transform it into a door of hope. I will transform your defeat into my delight. I will transform your vanquishing into my victory and the seed of Judah will do it. He who comes to whom it all belongs, he will do it. And so you see already way back in the book of Joshua, the valley of Achor is in his tribal allotments. But wait, there's more. Verses 13 to 14. One more to call your attention to. According to the commandments of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, and Ahiman, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. So here's what you got. You got a guy named Arba. He's a giant, and a giant has a giant named Anak. And Anak has three sons. And I know you're thinking, yes, we think the wives were also giants. Otherwise, oh, poor, poor moms. We think there was just a race of giant people, okay? Caleb, at 85, 
having virtually no army of his own, says, let me at them. We'll bite their sins till they fall. Oh, I love this sound of falling giant in the morning. Caleb can't be stopped. And he wants it because it's Hebron. Now catch this. The village of the four, Arba, is the father of the Anakim. He has Anak and he has three sons. And Caleb goes in and it takes them all. But there's something else going on there. They call it Hebron here. Arba in Hebrew is also the number four. And so to this day, Hebrews will call Hebron the village of the four, village Arba. You got Echad, Shtaim, Shalosh, Arba, Chamesh. That's how you count to five in Hebrew. Arba, the village of the four, because they say there are four very central historical figures buried there. Number one is Adam. Now, there's absolutely no proof of that whatsoever. It doesn't matter. They want it to be true, and so we give it to them. Adam is buried there, they say. Also Abraham and his wife Sarah. Also Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Also Jacob and his wife Leah. And so the village of the four is very central and significant. It's Hebron. And it's given to this Gentile, this Kenizzite, in the cave of Machpelah, where all these patriarchs are buried. It's given to Caleb, and he takes it. Now keep that in mind, because it's going to set up a contrast for later. This is all the tribal allotments of Judah. Uh, a little further down, verses uh, 16 and following. Caleb says, whoever strikes Kiriath-sephir and captures it to him, I will give Aksach, my daughter, as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz. Kenaz is one of the descendants of Esau, we think. The brother of Caleb captured it, and he gave him Aksach, his wife, or his daughter, as wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing, since you have given me land with Negev, the desert, Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs as well. So Caleb is delegating. He's diversifying. He took Hebron, but now he says, hey, hey, whoever can take that fortress in the hills, I'll give my daughter. Now, I know we hear that some 3,500 years later. We go, wait a second. Did she even get asked? Well, that was the custom of the day. And she makes no complaint. And I wouldn't think she would because let me just say, Othniel, he's Captain Awesome. All right? He ends up being the very first judge of, of Israel in Judges chapter 3. And he's a good man. Nothing negative ever said about him. The first judge, he's the best judge. He's a good guy. He loves the Lord. He fears the Lord. And he's good in battle. And so he takes this fortress city. Caleb gives him the property. But the wife, who's pretty clever because she's Caleb's daughter, goes, oh, that's really sweet. No, we like that a lot. But hey, make sure we're going to need some water to irrigate it. And so she rides up on her donkey, jumps off her donkey. What do you want, precious pumpkin? What is it? Dad, we need some water. It's yours, pumpkin. Done. And that's how marriages have worked for three and a half thousand years. Just, you see it right there. It's biblical. So ladies, we appreciate you. Then the very end of the chapter, chapter 15, in verse 63. But, but, this is all the land's of Judah, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out, or maybe more accurately, would not drive out. They would not, they could not drive them out because they would not drive them out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. That's not on Caleb, that's on the rest of the people of Judah. Either they couldn't or they wouldn't, or they didn't think it was worth it. They didn't view that little pocket of the promise as worth it. And we see this gong of dissonance of people not taking God at his word. Maybe he won't give it to us. And it will stay in the hand of the Jebusites for another 400 years until the Davidic king, King David, attacks. And as he's attacking, the Jebusites all come out and they begin to taunt him like they're from France and they go, you cannot come in here. Our deaf and lame and blind can stop you. Because <laughs> it was an impregnable city. And David says, I tell you what, whoever can sneak up the water shaft gets to be general of my army. And so Joab jumps in and he takes the water shaft and he drives up the Jebusites after 400 years and David sets up his capital in Jerusalem at long last, but it took 400 years for them to be dislodged. A really big deal. Well, that takes us through the end of chapter 15. Now we need to pivot and go through to chapter 16. By the way, you can read back through chapter 15 on your own. There's 122 cities in Judah. You should read them all, memorize them, put them on a bulletin board, have a great time with that. We're going to move on to chapter 16. In chapter 16, we're going to pivot away from Judah, and we're going to talk about Joseph. The two sons of Joseph, who had been the prime minister of Egypt. He has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
But Manasseh was actually born first. God switches their birth order because that's what God does. He is sovereign. So chapters 16, 1 through 9 are all the apportionments, all the cities and the boundaries of Ephraim. I just want to draw your attention to chapter 16 and verse 10. However, you can see on the map there, they were going to be the land above Judah and Benjamin. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the land in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. God was very clear through Joshua what he wanted them to do. I promise to give you land, offspring, and blessing. But the people of Ephraim go, yeah, I don't know. And Gezer, ah, there's other land. We, let's just leave. You know what let's do? We were slaves in Egypt, and that kind of was not awesome. Let's make them slaves. And so instead of emptying out one of the pockets of the promise, they leave it full of corruption and corrosion so that God cannot fill it. They did not understand the enormity and the gravity and the grace of the promise. Sometimes when God has promised, we have to open up and clear out the clutter of those pockets so that God can and will fill it with his promised blessing. They left it in place. It was a very, very bad decision Sure enough, in Gezer, the people of Ephraim would be drawn in temptation and depravity to worship Yahweh in the Canaanite way with statues of animals and sexual malfeasance and even sacrifice within 100 years. It was a very bad idea, but they did not heed the words of Yahweh. Well, that takes us then into chapter 17, where we'll start talking about Manasseh. In 17, we have this wonderful little narrative that there are these five daughters they are the daughters of Zelophehad, who's of the tribe of Manasseh. And Zelophehad didn't have any sons. And so they go, hey, we're about to get boxed out here just because we don't have any brothers. What do we do? But they knew God's word. Always a good idea. They go to Joshua and Eliezer the priest and they say, hey, we talked with Moses about this back in Numbers 27. And we told him the sitch. And Moses said, hey, let me ask God. God says, no, they get an entire proportion of land as well. God loves women let me just say, he provides for them as well. And the scriptures want to make sure that we see that in there. Beginning of chapter 17, God gives an equal portion of land for these five daughters. Moving on, we get to uh, chapter 17. We're going to speed down to verse 12. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. Not did not, just could not because they would not. But the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now, when the people of Israel grew strong, don't look ahead. You would think it would say they finally rose up and smacked them all and cleared the land as God told them to do. No. The people of Israel grew strong and they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Dun, dun, dun. But they did not utterly drive them out. And so we have more com uh, compromise. We have more uh, corruption from the Canaanite flavors of worship that's going to happen in Manasseh. Then verse 14. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot for our portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people since all along the Lord has blessed me. <laughs> Manasseh and Ephraim's chiefs come to Joshua and go, hey, 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 we're awesome. How come you've only blessed us with this little? By the way, look at the map again. Can I just have you look at the map? Remember, half of Manasseh is on the east side of the Jordan. The other half of Manasseh is on the west side of the Jordan, plus Ephraim. By the way, combined, they have more than Judah, and they're still complaining. There's an old adage in church and family, and it goes like this. Ready? I'll, I'll, I'll say it in the King James so that you remember. He that hath been given much, lo, he complaineth much. That's often how it goes. These two come and go, hey, 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 we're awesome. You need to give us more. What had happened is they had heard what Judah had been given. And they're like, hey, but we're two. We're Ephraim and Manasseh. We need to have even more. And by the way, Joshua, come on, brah. You're from Ephraim. Help a brother out. Come on, you got some sway with the big man in the tent. Help us out. You're from Ephraim. Well, Joshua's not here for it. And Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, if y'all are so awesome, Go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Oh, you need more? Fine. Go get them, tigers. 
The people of Joseph said, actually, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain there have chariots of iron with those in Beth Shean and in the villages and in those in the valley of Jezreel. Say what? God had already told them in Deuteronomy 7, when you go into the land, do not fear their chariots because they're like Tonka toys to me. That's not in the Hebrew. I'm elaborating. Don't worry about those. I'll wipe them out. And sure enough, in Joshua chapter 11, up in the north, these lands that Manasseh and Ephraim were inheriting, just in chapter 11, a few years earlier, the whole mustard armies of the north came with chariots and horses and God just obliterated them. But now they become afraid. Ah, you're supposed to have the contrast and compare. Caleb, I'm 85. I've got psoriatic arthritis. Ah, let me at the giants. And then you've got Ephraim and Manasseh with massive armies and lands and resources and the living God. And they go, oh no, they have chariots. It's really a stark reminder. Verse 17, then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to the farthest boundaries, borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. You looked at the chariots that were big and saw a small God. Joshua says, I'm looking at my God who is big. Those chariots are nothing. Now chapter 18, we're going to transition here. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, not Shiloh, at Shiloh, and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. This is a massive pivot point in our text. Hopefully we'll get a little bit more compelling here. The, the headquarters of Joshua and all of Israel had been at Gilgal on the western bank of the Jordan River, right there on the, on the far eastern edge of the land. Now they move it centrally to a place called Shiloh, very dead center of the land. Now this marks a really large transition. Previously for seven years, God had marched around in the Ark of the Covenant, his presence on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would go before them in battle. And wherever the ark was, they would have victory. And if they went to Gilgal, so was the ark. They followed the priests. When they crossed the river, there was the ark. But now they're going to move the ark and establish a tent of meeting or a tabernacle right in the center of the land. I cannot overemphasize the centrality and significance of the tabernacle, but I shall now try. It is the singular most important subject in your Bible in terms of word and verse count, other than God himself. The creation narrative, we get two chapters, just two chapters for just, you know, the creation of everything, including angels. But for the tabernacle, we get 50 chapters of how to build it, how to maintain it, how to work in it, what it means, what it symbolizes. Why? Because the tabernacle represents heaven. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 tells us very clearly the tabernacle is a picture of God and of heaven. The very first person to ever receive the Holy Spirit, it's not Abram, it's not Adam, it's not Moses, it's not David, it's not one of the prophets, it's a craftsman named Bezalel. Because God wants the tabernacle built and made so perfectly and precisely to be a model to manifest heaven on earth. And way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, see, this is all in God's word. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God said, I will have a time, a promise, where I will no longer move around in the ark. I will set you down in the middle of the land where you can worship faithfully, securely, and joyfully. And all three of those concepts and terms are found in chapter 18 of Joshua. He's doing it, he's doing it, he's done it. He will say to them in chapter 18, you will set the tabernacle in Shiloh, in Shiloh, in the place that means until he comes who owns it. The people will gather around the presence that is called until he comes who owns it. It is a messianic preparation. Their gathering in worship is a proclamation that the one who is supposed to come will in fact come. Do you understand we are pockets of the promise ourselves? When we gather, we are proclaiming that there is one who owns it all who will come again to claim it. And so they gather stationary. The tabernacle stays at Shiloh in the hill country of Ephraim for 359 years. Why not Jerusalem? Because they never would take it. It takes David taking Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
before finally they can move the tabernacle into Jerusalem and then David builds the temple. The tabernacle opens up at Shiloh in chapter 18, verse 1. And when we finish here in just a moment in chapter 19, the very end of chapter 19 has to do with the tabernacle at Shiloh, the meeting place of God gathered around until he comes who owns it. Now that's who we are as well. It's a new way to accomplish something new for a new age according to the same promise, until he comes to whom it belongs. Well, chapter 18 Verse 1, then the whole congregation of the people uh, of Israel gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Verse 2, there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going to take possession? of the no, That's a sweet translation. How long will you be so slack of mind, of heart, of courage? How long will you be so slack? You're standing there, he says to these other seven tribes, like what my dad used to say to me, like a calf at a new gate. Just, what are we supposed to do? Which the Lord, your God, of your, your fathers, he's already given to you. Like we talked about last week, God's done it. Now go do it. They needed some leadership. So Joshua at 100 goes, huh, I don't have much time. Let's get with the project already. So provide three men from each tribe and I will send them out that they may send out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances and then come to me. So what's going on there? Joshua sends out a survey crew of 21 people. We don't know how long this takes, but this time they go and they write a full report survey of geographical landscape and topographical landscape. Uh, this is what the land is. This is how it should be uh, divvied up. These are the boundaries. Brings it all back. They put it in the big clay urn. And before the Lord, chapter 18 tells us three times that these allotments happen before the Lord. God was with them in their attacks. God was before them in their allotments. And so the rest of 18 and all of 19 are the allotments of these remaining seven tribes. Remember, we've got uh, two and a half east of the Jordan. We've already settled Judah and we've already settled uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now we're going to hear about the rest of the tribes. So just very quickly, you can read through these at your heart's content. We'll put our map back up. We're going to walk through this, the rest of chapter 18 and 19. Benjamin. Benjamin gets this little sliver of land just north of Judah, south of Ephraim. Judah technically goes to what's called the Valley of Hinnom. You might remember in the New Testament, it's called Gehenna. It's a valley where they burned their trash and Judah's boundary goes right to it. Benjamin's goes right to the valley as well. They sort of share Jerusalem for a while until the time of David and he sort of takes it in as the tribe of Judah. Benjamin, fierce warriors, many of them left-handed, really good with a sling we find out in the book of Judges. Saul, the first king of Israel, was from Benjamin. Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, was from Benjamin. He was the final son of Rachel before she dies with him in childbirth. Then we have Simeon. Simeon is down later and sort of engulfed within Judah. Why? Again, back to Genesis 49. Dinah had been attacked, and so Simeon and Levi avenged their sister violently. And so Jacob says, because of that, you two men of blood and vengeance will not ever have a land strictly of your own. And so the Levites are not given lands per se, they're given cities. Simeon gets absorbed into Judah, and then the remainder of them migrates up into Ephraim. Zebulun, you can see where they are, a little further north. They were to be a seafaring people, creating a, the only harbor on the coast of the Mediterranean, receiving ships to do trade and to do cargo. Zebulun's really only claim to fame is that the village of Nazareth is in the tribal lands of Zebulun. Then we have Issachar. Oh, they get the most beautiful property in all of Israel. Issachar gets the Jezreel Valley. It's also, unfortunately, called the Valley of Megiddo, and for centuries and millennia, massive battles have been fought in the Jezreel Valley. Napoleon said it is the greatest theater of war on the earth. That's where Issachar gets stationed. Asher, Asher means happy. Asher is supposed to be the supply line for the rest of the nation. They're supposed to be the cooks and sort of the providers of resources. They're going to be on the Pacific Northwest, not really, the Mediterranean. They're going to be up north on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they've got their unique part to play because they are to be a pocket of God's promise. Issachar has got a unique part to play because they are a pocket of God's promise. Asher never really can't hold their land because the Phoenicians from the north and the Philistines from the south continue to harass them. But in the New Testament, 
we see Jesus as a baby at the temple and an old woman named Anna comes and says, now I can die for I have seen Messiah, Shiloh. He has come and she is from the tribe of Asher. Then we have Naphtali. Naphtali, well, Naphtali is good wine country. Naphtali is the hills and the Galilee, all the area to the west of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus has much of his earthly ministry. Capernaum is in, Gal- is in Naphtali, which is why it's so significant in Isaiah chapter 9 when it says, we always do this at Christmas, we have seen a great light coming in the darkness from Zebulun coming through Naphtali. Ah, it's preparing us for the coming of Messiah. And then finally, there's Dan. Now, Dan was supposed to have been on the coast of the Mediterranean, just north of Judah, but they could never take it because they were always harassed by the Philistines. You might remember Samson was from the tribe of Dan, and his job was to beat back the Philistines, but he never could do it because Samson had a problem being so dumb. (laughs) Sort of swole, sort of stupid. And so Dan can't hold the land. They have to go way, way, way up north, way, way, way up north of uh, Naphtali and Asher, and they settle up there, which is why the primary river in Jordan is called the Jordan. Yerdan means to descend from Dan. Dan wasn't supposed to be there. In fact, they were so far up there, they built their own altar for worship of Yahweh that wasn't what God wanted. They compromised. They were supposed to have been a pocket of the promise, but they corrupted it. They went about things their own way. Those are the completions of the allotments, which takes us to the end of chapter 19 at long last. Verses 49 to 51. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. At long last, he starts with Caleb, goes through all the tribes, and now finally at long last, Joshua himself, the true servant, waits for everyone else to get theirs, and then it's time for Joshua. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnah Serah, abundant provision. <laughs> It looks like the moon. There's nothing there. And yet that's what Joshua says, I'll take it. I'm 100, let me at it. I'm gonna make it awesome because I have a promise from God in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and he settled in it. These are the inheritance that Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the, hand, and the heads and the fathers of the houses of tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land because God promised, and each one of their tribes was a pocket of the promise, just like we are. We are pockets of the promise. So how do we apply this five-chapter narrative Old Testament text? Let me give you three very quick implications. Number one, it goes like this. Belief is contagious. That's why we're given these stories of Caleb and Joshua. They're not the heroes. God is the hero. However, Look at their faith. Look at how they were persuaded. Belief is contagious. And we say this a lot in church. Oh, that person loves God. That person loves God. That person loves God. I will contend nobody's deciding to love God. You love God or you don't. Nobody had to convince Joshua that God was worth loving. Nobody had to convince Caleb that God was worth loving. They saw who God was. They saw what God did. They saw that God was worth loving. And they saw that he loved them. And so the only, watch this, the only natural and normal response was to love him with their whole hearts in return. To fail to do so would have been to to crucify the intellect. Wait a minute. This God who splits the sea, who splits the river, who vanquishes my enemies, who is good, who is for me, who I can always trust. I love that guy. But because they had seen him because they known him, not merely from somebody else's trying to convince them. And so it begs the question, do you know anyone that loves God? And if you are one of those that loves God, to whom are you a contagion? Belief is contagious. Did you see what happens with Othniel? This Kenite, this Kenizzite, Caleb, who is a Gentile, let me at him, and his son-in-law, or future son-in-law as a nephew, actually, to begin with, he's picked up the traits of Caleb, Lemmy Adam. That kind of belief is contagious so that he will go on to be the first judge of Israel. 
when we see a person who actually knows and loves this God, it's contagious to us. And I will just say, I am so grateful for a church where there really are so many examples of faith. Thank you, and let's do more. Secondly, it's the counterpart. It goes like this. Disbelief is contagious. Disbelief is also contagious. I have a favorite artist I listen to. His name is Noah Gunderson, and he has a line in one of his songs. It says, nothing runs faster than fear. And he's right. Fear and doubt and distrust spread like wildfire. What is fear? Oh, it's not just that I'm afraid a lion's going to eat me. It's that feeling that I get when, when I know what I'm supposed to trust, something else looks like it might be a better offer. Oh, oh, I know what Yahweh has said about taking the chariots, but I think the Canaanites might be onto something. I think I might be going with them. Oh, I know that we've already wiped out all the other Canaanites, including Hazor, but they, they burned, you know, babies and sacrifice. That might be better. And that becomes contagious. The people of Ephraim disbelieve and it spreads like wildfire. The people of Manasseh become disbelievers and it spreads like wildfire. It starts with little complaints, you know, about the electric company, hypothetically, just saying. But then the gravity and the depravity quickly turns it into a full-on distrust of God or failure to believe that he is good or even aware of my situation or failure to believe the gospel and so I begin to grasp things for myself. That's called sin. Look at the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph who should have known better. But no, fear erodes faith and then it spreads to others. But as pockets of God's promise, it's our responsibility individually and in community to make sure that our attitudes and demeanors are first sincere and expectant and that they aren't, and when they aren't, that we aren't dragging and draining God's best from those around us. Do I really believe the gospel? Am I persuaded? If not, is it because of someone's influence around me or am I causing someone else to not be persuaded? Perhaps as we started off this morning, is it because of some barrage or bombardment on social media from a screen that I need to give up for Lent because it is absolutely leeching my very life and soul? Disbelief is contagious. Third point goes like this. You are the promise. <laughs> no, you're not Jesus. I get that. You're not Jesus. But most of us hear the word promise of God and we think about what sort of blessing or bounty we might get from him to make our life better or at least happier. But that's a misunderstanding. It's not big enough. You yourself actually are the promise. In Corinthians, Paul says this, chapter one, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You're the promise because you are in Christ. All over the world, God's gone global. All these little spirit indwelled in Christ, loved by the Father people, are little pockets of the promise everywhere they go. Where God's just deposited. You're not, not Asher up on the, on the Mediterranean coast. No, here in East Texas, you, you are a little pocket of the promise. You are the promise. Look at your life. Do you see, you've been given resources, you've been given offspring, or you are offspring and blessing. You have life, you have intellect, you have strength, you have vigor. You are the promise of life in God. It's one of the primary thrusts of all the New Testament epistles. First Peter chapter one talks about that you are the inheritance. Israel was looking for a material inheritance, but you already have the spiritual inheritance until he comes to draw them both together permanently and eternally. We're beginning the spiritual inheritance of what Israel began in the physical. One day, Messiah will return and the model of the tabernacle and the bride of Christ will both meet the one to whom we belong. I want to make this as real and practical as I can with a story from history. About 2,000 years ago, the nation of Israel was invaded and overrun by the empire of Rome. You know this. And there was a number of attempted rebellions and revolts. All kinds of different people would gather together in faction and try to oppose Rome. It never worked. Varying degrees of success, but ultimately, Rome puts their collective boot on Israel's neck and they rule. They are sovereign. Israel is beaten. And so the last straw is when Rome decides to strip the Sanhedrin, which is like their senate, of all power. 
They tell the Sanhedrin, you are no longer able to adjudicate the law in Israel. And so all the rabbis, all the priests, and the Sanhedrin members, they all tore their clothes, they put ash on their heads, and they walked through the streets wailing and mourning. This is what they said. Historian Josephus tells us this. They said this over and over again. The scepter has departed from between Judah's feet, but Shiloh has not come. Quoting Genesis 49. The scepter has departed from between Judah's feet, but Shiloh has not come. They were no longer able to rule from Judah. They were saying that God had failed and this promise from Genesis 49 had been broken. Ah, but little did they know. Little did they understand that God had not failed and his promise had not been broken. In fact, that would be by definition impossible with God. It would un-God God, the one thing he cannot do. About 100 miles north of Jerusalem in a village called Nazareth in the tribal lands of Zebulun, this little pocket of the promise, a craftsman named Yeshua from the tribe of Judah was about to lay down his tools and begin the ministry of Messiah in the lands of Naphtali. Shiloh had, in fact, come. Mm. The one to whom everything belongs had, in fact, come, and he would rule the nations with a scepter forever and ever. But this is what no one saw coming. Before that, he did something no one could ever imagine. He actually became the sin of all who by nature hated him and he would die in their place so that they could be the joyous, secure, faithful participants of his promise and worship forever so that they could be his promise. See, this is God's word. Lengthy in narrative, yes, but God's telling us something about God and therefore about us. Are you persuaded? Judah, for this we praise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this lengthy passage and what you have shown us in a lengthy narrative text about your goodness, your faithfulness, your sovereignty, your involvement, and your compassion and care for us. You are mindful of us. And he who comes to whom it all belongs has come and he will come again. And even so, while that time passes, Father, would you give us wisdom and zeal to be pockets of your promise in the here and now as we continue to manifest heaven on earth from the future emissaries and agents and ambassadors. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not of your people, who is outside looking in, would you give them the gift of faith? Maybe they don't understand it all. Maybe don't agree with everything. Maybe don't even like some of it but would they believe that you have sent your son Jesus to take away their sin and to give them righteousness so that they can have right relationship with you and they would begin walking as pockets of the, of the promise hereafter. Would you give them courage to speak with someone about that that they know or love or trust they can begin that process. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us through this obscure text in the Old Testament that you have a plan and a purpose and you've made a promise and it cannot, will not, does not fail. So invigorous anew, God. We pray these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.